Welcome to Talking Thomism, the official podcast of the Center for Thomistic Studies. Each episode of our series features a member of the Center or a visiting scholar presenting the fruits of his philosophical research. In this episode, we will hear Dr. Robert Coons, professor of philosophy at the University of Texas at Austin, giving a paper entitled Thermal Substances, Locating Form and Matter in Quantum Chemistry. Projects last few years has been to argue for uh, to argue that the quantum revolution in particular has been a great reversal that reversed the philosophical implications of science that we experienced back in the 17th century, where it looked like Aristotle was dead and materialism was dominant, and in many different respects that's been changed now. And philosophers, philosophers of science, I think, are still processing that fact and processing the implications of it. So, um, so anyway, I'm not going to talk about all that, all the aspects of that. I just want to focus on one thing, and that is where the notion of, of, a, of a substance, you see in Aristotle, where that would have relevance to contemporary science, particularly in the, in the quantum uh, field. And I'm going to argue that it, it does have uh, an irreplaceable, essential uh, role to play in, in modern science. In a, in a form that's very similar, at least, to what we find in Aristotle and in, in the scholastic tradition. Okay, so I'm going to uh, start out talking about just backing up and saying, well, what is it to be a substance? And I'll just sort of, again, throw out my own views about this. Obviously, there's lots of different ways to define substance. But it seems to me that uh, some of the characteristic features of it are, first of all, that it be uh, something that's metaphysically fundamental, uh, isn't really constituted by something else. It's, it has per se unity, so it's unified in, in a very strong sense, not just a heap of things. It's prior in some sense to its own material parts. So there's some kind of a holism that's built into this. So a heap is, is not prior to its parts, but a substance is prior to its integral parts. And of course, it's, it's a ground of, or its nature is, is an ultimate ground of, of motion and rest, explain change ultimately in terms of the natures of substances and other things. And the last thing I'll mention is, is an idea that Jonathan Schaffer, he's not an Aristotelian, but he's uh, writing in metaphysics recently, uh, a constraint that he calls the tiling constraint. And the idea is that once you've identified the fundamental level of reality, that those things should, should sort of tile reality in the sense that just as a, a tiled floor, uh, the tiles wouldn't overlap and they would also cover everything. So in the same similar way, substances shouldn't overlap each other. We should know one substance inside another substance and the substances taken as a whole should exhaust all of reality. And so that seems like a reasonable constraint. Um, I'm going to argue a bit later in the talk, if I get time to get to that point, that we might want to qualify that to some extent. Uh, remember we talked about this a few weeks ago. Uh, so, um, but, but nonetheless, it's a good starting point. And the non-overlap part I, I especially like. So uh, in, in the paper, I talk briefly about um, an approach that, uh, that are sometimes called emergence or emergent individualism that, uh, that, does, that violates the tiling constraint. Uh, so Peter Van Inwagen, Peter, uh, Tim O'Connor, Trent Merrick, and others have a view in which there are substances that are parts of other substances. So the human being's a substance, yes, but also the, the atomic particles that make it up are also substances. And um, so I just mentioned in the paper a couple reasons why I'm not happy with that. Uh, one is that it seems to end up with a kind of redundancy in terms of explaining reality. That is, 
why is this particular region of space occupied in a certain way? And we could say, well, because the atoms are there. And we could also say, because the human being is there. And it looks as though you've got two answers for one question. It seems unnecessary. And secondly, um, I've argued in other work that, that when, you, when you violate the time constraint in this way, you end up with a kind of competition between the atoms and the whole in terms of uh, what is causing the, the, the substances, actions, and passions. And that in order to solve that competition, you end up with something that looks very much like a kind of Cartesian dualism in the end, where this, the whole somehow has to interact with its own parts in a peculiar sort of way. And that, I think, is unsatisfying for various reasons. So, so those are a couple of reasons why I'd, I'd want to move away from that and stick with the more, um, again, I think more Aristotelian picture of the tiling constraint. Okay, so then section two of the paper is going to be what are the world substances? What, what sort of things qualify? And uh, I think it wouldn't be surprising from an Aristotelian point of view if we said that organisms do qualify, right? So they're living organisms are, are kind of a paradigm of a substance for, for Aristotle. We have um, causal powers, potentialities, like reproduction, growth, sensation, in the case of rational animals, rational deliberation and action and so on, all of which are uh, irreducible to uh, the, par the powers of the parts and their arrangements. Uh, so it has a uh, good grounds for thinking there's something metaphysically fundamental going on at that level. And uh, there was a priority of the whole to the, to the parts, as we saw before. Uh, so uh, so that, that seems to satisfy it. The, the, uh, the integral, at least the integral parts of an organism satisfy the homon homonomy principle. So if you, um, that is each of the integral parts of an organism are essentially parts of that organism, and that's been severed and it's no, longer, it's no longer a hand at all, except in a homonymous sense. Uh, and uh, again, I've argued in other places that um, in the case of organisms, we should really think of this, the, the causal powers of the parts, even all the way down to the subatomic parts, as being grounded and explained ultimately by the powers of the whole. But I won't say more about that. Uh, real briefly, uh, I argue that artifacts and groups are not substances. Um, you know, historically, it seems to Aristotle was not clear, not sure in his own mind whether an artifact was a substance or not. Uh, Thomas Aquinas seems very clear that they're not in several places in the commentaries on Aristotle. And um, you know, there are a number of reasons to think they aren't. One is the existence of an artifact seems to depend on extrinsic, <coughs> extrinsic facts. So uh, Michelangelo's, uh, uh, one of Michelangelo's sculptures, like David, is basically intrinsically just like lots of <coughs> unsculpted stone that's out there that hasn't, hasn't anybody carved the rest of it away from it. So, uh, so the fact that it exists at all, it seems to be an extrinsic fact. You give lots of other examples of that. Uh, the identity and persistence of artifacts is a subject of vagueness or sort of arbitrariness, right? Uh, is a restaurant the same restaurant it was last year when it's moved and changed chefs and so on? Who cares, right? Because it's not a substance. So, so we, can, we can answer that question however we please. Um, so anyway, um, and groups, for similar reasons, I think, can't, can't be substances. So anyway, let's, but let me move on to the really interesting points here, which are the claim that uh, what, what physicists like to call fundamental particles, that is, just means the smallest particles, uh, whatever they are, are not substances. And here, here, this is the point where I'm going to draw on the quantum revolution, quantum uh, facts here. Uh, and there are a number of different reasons for thinking this. Uh, one is that particles in entangled systems lack individuality. Uh, they seem to be, I mean, you end up with a system which is a three-electron system, <laughs> and uh, it's, 
metaphysically speaking, it doesn't seem that the three individual electrons have their own distinct identity. They just sort of merge into a three-electron system. And this seems to reflect in, in, the, in, in the unique kind of statistics that you get in quantum mechanics, where in a classical picture, uh, each, each particle has its own identity, and you can look at all the permutations of qualities across those identities, and you get classical statistics. In, in quantum mechanics, you get either the Fermi statistics or the Bose statistics, and in both those cases, you don't count individuals, individual particles individually anymore. You just sort of lump them together into a single, into a single bunch. And um, you know, a substance needs to have its own individuality, right? It's a fundamental building block of reality, so, so there's a good reason to think that there's a problem there. Uh, when you go to quantum field theory, um, there are different ways to think about this, but if you combine quantum field theory with, with special relativity, you get lots of situations where the number of particles is actually relative to your frame of reference. So there's not a sort of absolute fact about how many particles there are in a given system. Well, there, again, there have to be, uh, if, if particles were substances, you'd be able to count them. Right? Uh, it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be relative to your frame of reference. Uh, most famously, I think most everybody knows this, right, that particles seem to lack definite positions and trajectories through, through space and time. Um, they, uh, and again, I, 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 we can talk about this more in, in discussion. I think it's best to think of them as having potential positions, but not actual positions most of the time, except in cases in which they're, which they're measured. Um, and that, um, that, that, realm, that element of potentiality, I think, uh, disqualifies them from being substances, given that their, their position is such an important feature of them. Um, now, Again, there's some exceptions to this. There's Bohmian, Bohmian mechanics that does give a definite position to every particle. But even in Bohmian mechanics, it turns out that the particles don't have their causal powers intrinsically. So what causal powers a particle has depends upon how the other particles in the world are arranged at a given point in time. And that seems to disqualify them from being truly substances, because a substance should have its intrinsic powers uh, intrinsically, its causal powers intrinsically. OK, so uh, uh, now. In the um, philosophical literature in recent years, there's been a kind of overreaction, I think, to all this. Right? So up until this point, we all, we all sort of took a kind of atomism seriously or, or almost for granted. The world's made up of these little tiny things, and they're the fundamental things. Quantum mechanics really throws a monkey wrench into that. So Jonathan Schaffer has uh, famously in recent years argued that we should go the opposite extreme. We should be just the cosmos as the substance. They're just the one gigantic substance. Very Spinozistic sort of picture. Um, and um, so, I'm, again, I'm just giving a few reasons why uh, I don't think that makes sense. Um, first of all, uh, given the time constraint, that of course would mean that we weren't substances anymore. And so, uh, the facts about our own rational deliberation, choice, sensation, and so on, these would all ultimately just be facts about the whole cosmos. And that seems counterintuitive somehow. Doesn't seem to be accord with our own experience of ourselves. Um, it also, I think, renders science, if not impossible, almost so. So um, Nancy Cartwright, uh, especially in her book on uh, measuring nature's capacities, talks a lot about how experimental science depends upon isolating systems and then um, prodding them and intervening on them in various ways to see, see what happens. And she, she goes through lots of uh, case studies where this is, this is important. Well, if, if the cosmos is the only substance, and we adopt one of these quantum mechanical pictures in which, in which everything uh, fundamental is occurring just at the cosmic level, then it's never really possible to isolate anything, right? 
Um, you can't step out of the universe and sort of see, interact with it, right? You're always part of the universe. And that, um, if, if again, Cartwright's right, that throws um, doubt into all of our experimental results, at least potentially. And it's a problem I think that a lot of the, the, the holists, like Bohmian and holists, do run into, that um, you can never really be sure that you are, um, that your experimental results aren't being interfered with by things that are happening on the other side of the universe, literally, right? Galaxies away, right? Arrangements of particles could be making an, an effect here and now in, in what I see. And that um, introduces an element of skepticism in a sense to experimental science. Um, you don't get, basically you don't get localized powers at all. And also it involves, I mean, Schaffer's approach depends upon a particular approach to quantum mechanics called the no collapse sort of approach, which is, uh, that measurement never really happens. The universe is always in a state of, uh, of indeterminacy. And uh, there are lots of reasons uh, for not wanting to go that way. Okay, so, um, so let's, let's say that all that's right. So now we've got organisms are fundamental substances, the particles are not, the universe isn't. That leaves us with a lot of the universe to cover. Right? <laughs> Unless you want to be a you know, Leibnizian and think that, uh, that everything is alive at some level, right? It's a possibility, I guess, but, but I, I prefer not to go that way. So, uh, so we're going to need something else. And so my proposal is, is that we look to, look to science, look to uh, quantum chemistry and thermodynamics, as it's actually done, not, not as, uh, not, so you have, to, you have to ignore some of the philosophical gloss that even the scientists give to the things and just sort of look at what they're actually doing and see, is there any evidence in contemporary science for the existence of something <laughs> that is substance-like out there in the inorganic world. That's the idea, and if so, why or where do we find that? So I'm gonna call these things thermal substances because I think that thermodynamics and, and related fields like chemistry are sort of crucial here. Um, so I've, I've been influenced very much by a, a project, a program that was started by a chemist named Hans Primus. Uh, he's an Austrian uh, chemist, physical chemist, and also a philosopher of the late 20th, very early 21st centuries. And um, his, his point is, well, he relies very heavily on something called the von Neumann Stone Theorem. So I'll explain a little bit about this. So if you take quantum mechanics and you, you do it as the pioneers of quantum mechanics did, so Bohr, Born, von Neumann, and so on, you, uh, you have a finite number of little systems, particles, let's say, right? and you have a dynamical theory for that. Now the dynamical theory, which is called the Schrodinger equation, right, has some interesting features. It's completely deterministic. It's more deterministic than classical mechanics was, actually. Explain that in bed. Absolutely deterministic. <coughs> absolutely reversible. And uh, it's a world in which things mostly don't have definite position or momenta almost all the time. So they're almost always in a state of, of, uh, of um, indeterminacy. So the, the problem, of course, with that picture is that it contradicts sort of everything we know about the world, right? And contradicts the way we do quantum mechanics, in fact. Right? So the way you do quantum mechanics is indeterministic, right? It involves um, irreversibility because measurements are irreversible. Once they happen, they change things going forward. And, um, and of course, whenever we, we actually make a measurement, we always observe something being somewhere and some, having some, uh, whatever we're measuring, we, we end up with a definite result. This is, this is basically what we call the, the measurement problem. Uh, lots and lots of ways that physicists and philosophers have tried to solve this, but Primus says, well, in fact, a lot of these problems disappear 
if you go to the infinite limit. You go to what's called the continuum limit, as he calls it. So in other words, instead of supposing that you've got a finite number of particles, let's suppose there's an infinity of subsystems that form a kind of continuum of matter. Then you escape the von Neumann stone theorem in various ways, and you end up with, uh, with properties now that we could call classical properties. They're not necessarily the same classical properties we had in, uh, in Newtonian mechanics, but they're classical in the sense that they don't enter in, into superpositions. So in other words, things have these properties all the time. They don't, uh, they don't uh, become indeterminate in some respect. So things like temperature, entropy, chemical composition, chemical form, things like this, are going to be these uh, classical properties in the, in the premis kind of picture. Um, and so, um, so, so the way, phys way chemists and physicists think about this is that they think it's a kind of idealization or a model for representing chemical and thermodynamical uh, uh, phenomena. So instead of, instead of just thinking about the particles as a finite number of particles, like a finite number of molecules bouncing around in, inside a box, you, you, you sort of you make them in, 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 theoretically, you make them smaller and smaller and smaller, but more and more of them, right? until you get to a point at the ideal limit where there's an infinite number of infinitesimally small particles, basically. So you have, if you have an effect, a continuum. So, uh, so what, what Primus and what others have pointed out is that um, unless you go to that thermodynamic limit in that way, the, 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 uh, again, the Stone uh, von Neumann theorem means that you cannot explain certain things that we want to explain in chemistry and thermodynamics. So one really big feature is what's called spontaneous uh, symmetry breaking. So this is a situation where you've got um, something that's in effect balanced at the head on, the, on the edge of a knife and can go either way and just sort of spontaneously goes one way or the other. Uh, you find this, for instance, as, as, as I mentioned here, in cases of phase transitions where you're you're right at the freezing point of, of water, let's say. And the water at that, under th that point and the pressure and so on can go either way. It can either exist as a water or it can exist as, as a solid. Uh, there's a kind of symmetry breaking that occurs at that point. Now, if you, if you stick with the, what Primus called the pioneer finitistic quantum mechanics, there's never any symmetry breaking, spontaneous symmetry breaking. As I said, it's absolutely deterministic. So what would, what would really happen if you did put a ball on top of a hill, it's perfectly symmetrical, uh, it will go down every side at once. <laughs> that is, it, it won't choose, and there's no way to make it choose uh, given, given, that, given that kind of finite framework. So, um, so yeah, so that, that's a problem, right? Another thing that Primus points out is that um, if you go to the infinite limit, you do get stochastic phenomena. So now we can talk about uh, indeterminism, and it actually matches the Born rule pr probabilities that you want to get out of the observations. You get an irreversibility of, of, of direction to time. And Primus argues that this is absolutely fundamental to science because we're always, in our experimental science at least, assuming that time has a direction, that you can set things up a certain way and then you observe what happens, right? If you really lived in a world in which everything was irreversible, um, observation wouldn't make any sense, Prima says, and I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, also, more importantly, even, even more importantly, there are a whole host of really important chemical and thermodynamic properties, including temperature, entropy, chemical potential, and so on, that can only be defined at the infinite limit, at this continuum limit. They're absolutely indefinable in the finite kind of model. 
This is like really helpful because like a lot of a lot of uh, philosophers still think, for instance, that you can define temperature as something like mean kinetic energy. It turns out that's wrong, right? Uh, there are lots of systems that have mean kinetic energy but don't have temperature. Temperature can only be defined at the, what's called the in an equilibrium state, and an equilibrium state has to be defined relative to this continuum limit. So, um, so in fact, there are these, any kind of rigorous definition of these notions requires this. So, in, in the paper, I spent quite a bit of time then in, 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 uh, wrestling with the question of whether we should take this sort of thing seriously, right? So, I, again, I think the way, way scientists and, and certainly most philosophers take this is that um, the finite model, right, that represents how things really are, and this infinite limit going to the continuum and so on, that's just a kind of useful fiction or something that we invent in order to be able to do chemistry and thermodynamics and so on. Um, but I'm arguing, I'm going to argue, well, I've argued in the paper that that's, that that's got to be wrong, that um, uh, in, in the case of a useful fiction, right, like, the, like a, a frictionless plane or something like that, or the ideal gas, right, um, we know that the features that we want to explain really exist in the unidealized situation, right? We know that the thing is actually rolling down the incline, right? <laughs> and, and it has a position at each point in time. So we can go to the idealized <laughs> things just to help us do the calculations. It right? simplifies our life and so on. But in the case of the continuum limit, the phenomena that we're trying to explain, phase transitions, like solidity, liquidity, and so on, entropy, temperature, and so on, irreversibility of time, they don't exist in the, in the finite model at all. And so the finite model cannot be a representation, accurate representation of reality. It's, I want to reverse things. I want to say, in fact, it's the continuum limit that represents things, how, how things really are. The finite representation is actually representing the realm of potentiality. That is, it's representing the fact that this system could be subdivided in certain ways. Uh, so in other words, the, the particles as, as finite, a finite uh, plurality of, of particles, let's say, exists only potentially in a thermal substance, not actually. In actuality, there's a continuum of, of an infinite number of, uh, which brings with it an infinite number of, of degrees of freedom, which is the, the crucial thing here. Okay, so, um, so that also um, enables us to, I think, solve the um, uh, measurement problem in a very natural, non-ad hoc sort of way. So, so for instance, there's a, there's a proposal out there among physicists called the GRW proposal uh, that suggests that when you put enough particles together, they spontaneously collapse down into uh, a more or less definite position in momentum. And um, you know, if, if you tinker with these numbers, you can make it come out in such a way that we can't falsify this idea, right? Uh, it could be true. But there's no evidence for it. There's nothing, there's nothing that actually supports the GRW mechanism. It's just added ad hoc in order to explain the measurement problem. In the case of the uh, continuum limit and the way in which it's used in thermodynamics and chemistry, uh, Primus again shows that you can get these stochastic results um, naturally falling out of the, the model itself. And so, um, and so the, the thermal substances, even though they're parts which only, only exists potentially, don't have definite positions and so on. The thermal substance as a whole does have a definite position at all, all times. Uh, its parts may not have definite momentum and energy, but the thing as a whole has an energy, an entropy, temperature, chemical form, chemical potential, and so on. 
So, um, so there's still a sense in which I think this is, it matches like, very nicely some of the things that, that uh, St. Thomas says about, about the virtual presence of elements in, in mixtures. Because the, the particles and their, their arrangements, so for instance, their arrangements in a particular molecule, like the water molecule, uh, is, still, is still used in the infinite model. Right? So in other words, we, take, we don't just take a kind of cloud of particles unarranged and, and take them to the continuum limit. Rather, we take water molecules, right? And then we take that to the continuum limit, as though they were more and more and smaller and smaller water, water molecules in order to get to that limit. So the, the structure of the molecule itself, the particular angle between the bonds and so on, that's still there virtually in the model, right? In the final model. It makes a difference to the results that you get when you, when you uh, apply things at the primus level. Um, so anyway, those, those are some arguments for, for that. Um, okay, good. Um, let me um, pull back then, and, um, and I could talk more about some of those details if, if you're interested. Uh, someone who's, who's done some good work on this in recent years is Laura Rucci at uh, University of Michigan. Done some really interesting work on on these limits. I mean, she doesn't take it in the kind of ontological Aristotelian way that I want to, but uh, but she take but she she's very good at arguing that this continuum limit has to be something real that, that we're getting at uh, that it's a marker of, of something that uh, that we have to take seriously. Um, okay, so um, I wanted to uh, maybe pull back from this if I got a little bit of time yet and uh, think about um, some other implications of all this for our um, for kind of broadly hylomorphic approach to, to metaphysics. Uh, one is that, um, one question is whether there are exceptions to the tiling constraint, the tiling principle. So as, I, as I'm thinking about these, these thermal substances, if you think about the electrons and photons and other sort of particles that the substance might be emitting at various points in time, uh, on this model, those things aren't themselves substances. They're merely integral parts of the thermal substance, ways the thermal substance sort of expressing itself uh, over, over space and time. But of course, that then leads the opens up the possibility that the photon might be observed long after the, the star or whatever the thermal substance is gone. So photons from extinct stars would be an example of this. Um, so um, I mean, there are various ways I could try to get around this, but basically I think my, 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 my view now is that we should, we should admit some exceptions to the tiling constraint. Not in the sense that substances can overlap each other, but in the sense that there are s some parts of the material universe that aren't parts of substances anymore. They once were parts of substances. They're sort of fragments of perhaps extinct substances or fragments of substances that aren't extinct but are nonetheless separated from that substance in a, in a significant sort of way. And I think that, that, you know, that may involve some change in our conception of the relationship between substances and its parts, and, and indeed substances and its accidents, right? Because the accidents of the part are also going to be accidents of the whole substance. Uh, but perhaps not, not devastating problems. Um, I mean, it would, if we go this way, then I think we can, if we switch over to the biological realm, uh, we can make sense of things like uh, cells that are, are maintained in a laboratory long after the donor of the cell is, is dead. I mean, what's going on there? Are they still human cells? Yes, I think they are. They're in some sense still parts of the body of that, of that extinct donor. Um, they, they only make sense as parts of that, of that, uh, of that body. But nonetheless, they do have an existence uh, that uh, doesn't, from moment to moment, depend upon their being sustained somehow by the, by the original substance. 
Um, it's from spermatozoa because, for example, this is well, right? I mean, uh, is it spermatozoa on human? Well, yes. Is it actually, does it actually have the substantial form, the soul of the, of the male? Probably not, right? I mean, the, you could freeze it and use it much later, and you wouldn't want to say the person's still alive just because he's got some <laughs> sperm in a sperm bank somewhere. Um, but um, but, but I, I, do we want to make them substance in their own right? That would be really weird because then you'd have something that isn't a human substance involved in human reproduction. So better just to say it's a, it's a, it's a fragment of some now extinct uh, substance or separated substance. And of course, this is nice for transubstantiation as well. Uh, so uh, it means that the possibility that the accidents could survive uh, the uh, conversion of the substance into the body and blood of Christ would be maybe unusual, but not unexceptional, right? It would be something that you actually might find versions of that in the natural world. Now, of course, you, what you don't find is substance converted into another substance. So that, that would still be a miracle, but and indeed the survival of these particular accidents would be a miracle as well, but it wouldn't be a um, violation of some deep metaphysical axiom, perhaps. Um, so I know we're sort of running out of time, but I, I, I had some thoughts about um, how to make sense of things like proximate and signate and prime matter in this kind of picture. picture. Uh, and, and the thought, again, the thought is that, uh, that the microphysical level here, and especially when we do think about something as consisting of a finite number of, of fundamental particles, that at that point we really are describing the material of the substance as opposed to the substance itself. We're looking at, we're looking at a realm of, of potentiality rather than, rather than actuality. And, um, if you think about this, um, I mean, I, I've done some work on the, on the many worlds kind of interpretation. And uh, in, in an earlier work, um, I argued that you could have a, a kind of Aristotelian version of that where um, only one crucial thing is that only one world is, is actual. All the other Everettian worlds are merely potential. And it's the agency of, of substantial form that actualizes a particular, uh, a particular branch through that. But in any case, but, but the other branches still exist in a way, just in, in, in the sense of, of potentiality. And so, um, so for each, each material substance, we could look at what I call in, in the handout the spray, which would be all the different uh, positions and, and accidents that that substance would have under various branches that are potentially there in a particular case. Um, and so the uh, substance is, once the substance is actually generated, then, um, then that spray begins to move from the merely potential to the actual. And as other, as other substances act upon it, um, by its efficient causes, uh, more and more of a particular branch of that spray becomes, becomes actual. Um, but the, uh, the, the material level really represents this potentiality for change as opposed to actuality. So the form, again, corresponds to actuality, the, 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 the matter, to uh, potentiality. And uh, yeah, let me just say something real quickly about these last two points. Because um, I've been thinking a lot about the, this ancient problem, I think Scotus and others press this against uh, the Thomists, of, of how do you do individuate material substances of the same species, right? And uh, the Thomistic answer is it's something like signate matter. That is, it's the, it's the quantitative sort of spatial aspect of matter of the substance that individuates them. So Socrates and Plato are, are two distinct individuals because they occupy different places at the same time and, and things of that sort. And the, um, you know, the Scotistic objection was that there's kind of vicious circulation here. 
because you've got to um, because the the um, accidents of um, position and so on are in some sense dependent on the substance. Right? So the accidents of Socrates' location is dependent on Socrates himself and his 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 substantial form. And yet the individuality of Socrates is supposed to depend upon those accidents. And so it looks like you've got a kind of vicious circularity. And as I think one would expect, really, I mean, this is the sort of move that Aristotle himself makes quite a bit, and Aquinas too, is, is to say, well, look, we just have to distinguish two kinds of priority here. And once we distinguish those two forms of priority, we realize there's no, there's no problem, there's no vicious circularity. So um, the priority that there's a priority here in individual definition or, or individual identity. And in that, in that respect, the, the, the accidents of position are prior to that of the substance. So the substance, its, its proximate matter, and these, these accidents are all, uh, initially at least, in the realm of potentiality. Right? They're all potentially existing things. And they are, each of them are, are interdefinable in a sense. So there's a kind of circularity here in, in basic definition. The substance is the substance it is because it has the accidents it has, or has the matter it has, and that's because it has the accidents it has. Those accidents are the accidents they are because they're accidents of this, of this substance. So there's a real circularity there. But it's not, a, it's not a, a vicious circularity or a problematic circularity. Um, Kit Fine, contemporary metaphysicians, talk about this sort of thing. Uh, certainly, if you look at fictional objects, he thinks there's lots of cases of this. So, um, uh, Bertie and Jeeves, for instance, are entities whose very identity is interdefined, right? You can't really make sense of Jeeves except as Bertie's uh, man. Uh, you can only make sense of Bertie as the guy who has Jeeves as his butler and so on. So, uh, so th there's an interdefinition there, and that's fine. There's no, there's no problem with that. Uh, and not only is there a circularity of definition, though, there's, a, there's actually a particular direction, right? Because in the case of two substances with the same species, um, the accidents are distinct from each other in a more fundamental way than the, than the whole substances are, because the accidents are different in species. Right? They're different locations at the same point in time. And so the, the identity of Socrates and Plato flows from the accidents in this way. So where do you get the priority of the substance itself? Well, that's when you look at actuality. That is, what is it that brings these accidents into actuality? It's the substance and ultimately the, and, and really the substantial form. So all of these accidents and substances exist initially in, in potentiality. Once Socrates is, let's say, conceived, he's, he's brought into being, a substantial form is present, and then that actualizes some of these accidents. So the actuality flows from substance, substantial form to accidents, not the other way around. And so there's no, no real conflict, no, no vicious circularity there. Um, one last thing to say here about the problem of, of substantial change. So suppose we take the view, which I've, I've come to take more and more, which is that, that all of these substances and all of the parts of a substance are um, definable in terms of that substance in such a way that they can't be transferred to another substance. Right? So, um, so you can't, you can't take, um, well, the particles that I uh, ex expel or the bits of matter I expel when I'm breathing and sweating and so on, they do become parts of uh, thermal substances. Well, they don't. Right? They actually cease to exist and are replaced by new things of similar kinds that are parts of these thermal substances. So at that point in which a part you know, is extruded, let's say, 
it really ceases to exist. At least there's no numeric identity across that boundary. Because um, now, you know, there are cases where it can survive without any substance at all, as I mentioned earlier. You know, cases where you have these fragments of extinct substances. But, it, but that very thing can't become part of a new substance because the parts of that new substance all have to be essentially parts of that substance. They're all going to be defined in terms of that substance. So that creates a potential problem then for uh, having, finding a, an underlying substrate for substantial change, which was apparently part of Aristotle's reason for introducing matter at all in, in, in the early books of the physics. Right? You have substantial change. There's got to be some sort of substrate. Matter is the substrate that persists through, through the substantial change. So I want to say, well, that can't literally be true. You can't have exactly the same matter, whether it's prime or whatever, uh, surviving through substantial change. But if we accept the idea that this continuum limit really does need to be taken seriously, so matter isn't uh, really actually particulate, it's actually continuous. Right? Then we can, uh, we can embrace the idea that substantial change is also continuous. So when something goes out of existence, it doesn't just at some instant stop existing. It's rather it gradually gets smaller and smaller, so to speak, and approaches uh, a zero volume at, at, a, at a certain limit, continuously uh, corrupting right, until it's finally gone at, at, at the final point. And likewise, when something's generated, it's going to be generated in this sort of continuous way as opposed to being generated like a mass all, all at once. And that, I think, provides us, that continuity at that point provides us with enough, with enough uh, continuity, enough, um, well, it, yeah, enough continuity to be able to argue that, um, <coughs> that we have change, real change going on here as opposed to just an abrupt annihilation and, uh, and creation of something new in its, in its place. Uh, there's rather, there's a sense in which, and, and well actually in, in one of my, uh, I think I can't remember if it's in that book or the, or the bigger one, uh, Pick of Ants and I actually have an argument against this new position, arguing that look, you, you have to have a substrate that's numerically the same through substantial change. And the idea is, here's a thought experiment. Suppose all the substances in the world came to an end at exactly the same instant. And so a whole bunch of new substances had to be generated at that very same instant. Then what would, what would hold the world together, right? I mean, there'd, nothing, there'd be nothing there that would make the world a single world, nothing there that would make time a single continuum of time, right? But on this new picture, we have an answer to that now. We can say, well, because that's just impossible. You can't have everything naturally, at least, corrupt at the same moment in time, because in order to corrupt, it's got to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And so, um, so there's no way to have um, the whole universe, uh, uh, all the substances in the universe come, come to end at the same point in time. The, the corruption and, and generation has to be this, this, this temporally extended process. And those, and those continuous processes are what's going to sort of hold the world or hold time together against that kind of, uh, of counterexample. 